The dark and macabre have intrigued us for years, but are their bewitching powers waning? The old greats such as Poe, Lovecraft, and Hitchcock have long since passed into the void. The masters of the 1970s like James Herbert and George Romero are gone. Stephen King and John Carpenter are in their twilight years. So where does that leave the current state of horror? The future is bright and author Thomas Gloom hopes to unveil this truth by discussing the genre's past and present. Settle back, get comfortable, and remember to leave a light on as you enter into the gloom. Well, welcome, listeners, to the debut episode of Into the Gloom. I am Thomas Gloom, and I'm a bit nervous. Um, maybe you could <laughs> say I'm nervous as hell, uh, but I've, I've got Spencer Hamilton here with me, uh, my first guest on this show. And are, are you nervous at all, Spencer? I was just going to say, who is also nervous? That's me. <laughs> All right. Well, we're in the same boat, but I'm 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 nervous, but I'm excited. And any opportunity that I get to nerd out about horror with a fellow horror lover is is a good time in my book. So <laughs> I agree. Well, uh, the the format for this show moving forward is I, I want to bring folks on and Really, at the start, the first number of episodes are going to be horror authors, and specifically horror authors in the indie sphere. And what I'm, what I'm wanting to do is sort of invite them on and let them choose the theme or the topic that will sort of lead and guide us as we go through the episode. And so this episode, we're focusing on literary horror. And so, Spencer, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us why you chose this particular topic. Yeah, well, you know, when I first, uh, when I first launched my, my pen name with, with Kitchen Sink, I, I sat there considering what to say in, in, you know, my bio for various social media accounts and, and uh, the about the author stuff um, that, that you have to post a million places when you start. And, um, the way that I described myself was literary horror. And <clears throat> I was thinking about why I did that and why that was an important distinction to me. And I think it, it really comes down to, there is this, this kind of war being raged right now where people on the horror side have constantly been uh, dismissed by the literary circles. And vice versa, I think in a very reactionary way, um, the horror community is also dismissive of uh, lit fic, of literary fiction. And um, it, it, it breaks my heart a little because some of my favorite books embrace both of those, um, those spheres, you know? So I kind of wanted to, you know, take, take the term back, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. And I definitely agree with that. And I've, I've read about this, obviously, and I've, I've heard about it. But now that I've been stepping into 
the, the horror sphere and doing some writing of my own and really upping my reading game as well. I have, I've seen a lot of that. You know, for me, I always heard about it growing up and didn't fully understand it, but it was always associated with Stephen King, right? Because mm -hmm. you've got this, this author who is prolific and he is a household name and he's made millions upon millions of dollars and sold millions and millions of books. And yet he doesn't get any of those literary awards. He isn't invited to these galas and, and, and doesn't get to take part in some of these other, you know, um, these, these get togethers. He's sort of relegated to the side, even though he's maybe selling more than some of these other authors. Maybe his writing might be even better. And, and from what I saw growing up, what I perceived was it was simply because he wrote scary things. And that was seen as taboo. That was seen as just trashy, I guess you could call it, cheap thrills. And when you read Stephen King, though, especially when you get into some of his short stories, there is a literary prose. There is this intelligence. There is this deep connection that you'll have when you read his writings. And I was always flabbergasted. And I know that he sort of, he jokes about it and, and he, he tries to say lighthearted, but I know that deep inside that must affect him in a way. And, and it's sort of, he's, he's been a, a, a badge, an ugly badge has been pinned to his chest for no other reason than the, the, the genre he chooses to write in. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I think uh, his, I think his publication of Different Seasons was purely him getting back at mm. the critics who continually, as, as you know, you, you put it perfectly, as, as they, they bar him from the awards and, and these things that he absolutely uh, should be in the running for. You know, I mean, Shawshank Redemption, I think the story he tells of that woman he runs into in the market who says, uh, I don't like your stuff. I love the good stuff like Shawshank Redemption. And he goes, well, I wrote that. And she just says, no, you didn't and walks off. I think that's the perfect encapsulation of, of the dismissive snobbery that um, can be thrown our way, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but, we, um, we make these. But even if you judgments. look at King's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you know, everybody has opinions. Doesn't mean that they are uh, backed up by actual um, experience or knowledge or context or any of these things. Um, but like, even if you look at King's very first books, I think two of his most literary horror novels um, are. Salem's Lot and The Shining, um, his second and third book when he was in his 20s. Um, and, and so to me, he has been swimming in the literary horror sphere from the beginning. Mm. Um, but like I said, um, for some reason, there's this, this uh, attitude that because we write about the taboo, the fears. And, you know, this is America. We don't like talking about the, the real true uh, heart of what scares us. Um, because he 
chooses to dip into those, which which is a much deeper well of themes than most other uh, literary uh, subgenres you could choose. Um, because he does that, um, it's it's easily dismissed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And before we get too deep into this discussion, I think that it's important. Um, and obviously, there are going to be different perspectives. Um, and it depends on who you talk to. But I, since you chose this topic, and since, you know, you're here on on this show, which is the debut episode, by the way, um, hey. <laughs> I, got, I got to drop that as much as I can. There's only going to be one first episode. Um, Every five minutes, that's your quarter. <laughs> uh, but let me ask you this. So what distinctions do you personally look for to separate, in your mind, horror genre from specifically literary horror genre? So to me, there's two main distinctions. And I think first and foremost is theme. Um, when you are writing literary horror, uh, your priorities have switched and the theme is, is paramount and the horror uh, comes beneath that and is used to show the theme. Um, and the, the second um, distinction that I see is in a marked style, um, or I guess put a, a, a different way, um, form. Uh, literary horror plays with form a lot. It's one of the reasons why I love Paul Tremblay um, and why I love Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen Graham Jones is kind of this chameleon where he dips into uh, pulp horror, noir horror, literary horror, uh, sometimes within the same book. And part of that is his love of challenging the form and telling stories in different formats so like think epistolary how dracula is written in letters um that is what i'm talking about when i say uh different forms of telling a story but yeah it, those two distinctions theme and form i think uh could speak towards 99 percent of what makes a horror novel literary yeah no and i i definitely agree with both of those theme and form and I think that for me also, there tends to be, and I guess this could be tied in with form a little bit, but the prose, just the mm -hmm. way that things are written, it, it, it just, to me, I don't know how to term it other than to say it's more artistic, um, it, it's more ornate sometimes. There's just, there's a beauty there. And, and for me, honestly, when it comes to some of the older literary horror like I, I i struggle to get into it a lot of it's just the old language like for me dracula like the story is amazing mm -hmm. and and i know that it has it, it's sort of just created uh the the vampire genre that we see nowadays and obviously yeah. you know salem's lot uh huge hugely inspired by dracula but i I, I, I can't get past that old language and maybe it's just my, my immaturity, um, but I see the <laughs> beauty there and the ornateness. But for me, in a, in a more modern sense, when I look at the writings of John Langan, like I love his writing. 
And mm-hmm. I know that for most people, the fisherman, that's where they're going to know him from. Right. Read that book. There is this, this beauty along with the, the brutality and the morbidness and the fear and the horror and everything else that's there. But there is this ornate beauty that sort of ties it all together. It's this thread that's, that's running through the entire book like, like, like a fishing line. And, and that to me just really, it stands out. And it's not just that book either. You know, I, I've read some short stories by him and, and that thread is there as well. And, um, you know, it's just, it's different. It's got a different feel. I think that for a lot of the, for a lot of horror out there, um, it's sort of just like, how can I scare my reader the most? How can I shock them? How can I gross them out? And obviously there's a place for that and people like to be entertained in that way. But I like how you were saying that the, the, the fear and the horror aspect when it comes to literary horror, it maybe takes a little bit of a back seat and the thing is in the driver's seat. And that's not to say that uh, literary horror books are um, not as scary. Uh, Sometimes they are, sometimes they're more so, but like what you're saying about the language, I definitely think uh, is, is part of the distinction. If you look at like, okay, Joe Hill, I think Joe Hill has this incredible ability to write uh, with true economy of prose, you know, he doesn't go purple. Sometimes he'll, he'll paint a picture in just a few words, like a very short, punchy sentence. Um, and he does it in such a way that he kind of dances between, um, between pulp and literary. And, um, I think that, his his biggest uh, influence is David Mitchell, who's an, also a big influence of mine. And um, David Mitchell is, you know, he's the epitome of literary author these days. But um, he has has put himself in this position where he can also write speculative fiction in his stories, and critics don't sneer at him for it, um, which is kind of impressive. And um, I, you know. I one day want to, to, to somehow do what he's done and, and kind of trick the critics mm-hmm. into like thinking speculative, speculative fiction is highbrow because it absolutely is, but critics have, have spurned it for, for decades, right? And, and um, I think the language has a big part to do with that, you know? Yeah, and I like what what you said here and what you said a little bit earlier too, this this sort of blending of different genres. When you talk about mm-hmm. Paul Tremblay, when you talk about, you know, St- Stephen Graham Jones, Joe Hill, these 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 guys that have really just embraced that. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think that the majority of us, we might be horror fans at heart. That's our number one. But we like other genres as well. There are other things that entertain us. There are other things that hold our attention and grab our heart. And honestly, for me, some of my favorite books, some of my favorite films involve the blending of those two genres. And sometimes it's those genres that seem like they don't belong, that when they get tied together in a marriage, it's beautiful. For me, one of my favorite films is Shaun of the Dead. And it takes horror and it takes comedy, which Mm -hmm. 
for those of us that know, we realize that those two genres are actually very close to each other and what they can do and what they can accomplish. And, and those two emotions, yeah, you know, they're right next to each other. Yes. But putting them together in a movie or putting them to, together in, in a book, mm -hmm. it will stick with you. And the thing yeah. is, too, is that they you then have the opportunity, if you are a writer or you're a director, you can lull people into a false sense of security with the comedy. And then when you come with the horror, it will hit so much harder. Because even though they go into it knowing Shaun of the Dead, there's zombies here, you can hit them out of left field because they've been laughing and yucking it up so much. And, and, and I love that. And to be able to do that in writing with all sorts of different genres, um, it's a powerful thing, but it's also something that not everybody can, um, can do a good job with the follow through of it. So I respect yeah, know, the and, guys and gals that can do that. And speaking toward what you just said of, um of of kind of luring the the viewer or the reader into this false sense of you know laughing and then they can get hit with the scares i think that writing or storytelling is in its way uh a magic trick mm. and and so you know invariably you'll find somebody who says that they don't like this genre of movies you know they'll there'll be somebody who says oh i don't like uh, romantic comedies or I don't like action films and you'll talk to them more about it and find a movie that they love that fits into that genre and it really is just there are pieces of that film that have in a way tricked them into being more open to to that genre um, yeah. and I, I see that a lot with books too you know, and, and so, you know, I like, that's why I carry around business cards that say Spencer Hamilton magician. Just kidding. I don't. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, a, it really is going back to what you said about language. Um, language is how you trick people, how you tell a story, how you build, um, build an atmosphere, how you set the setting, all these things are accomplished with the language. Um, so I, I really like your distinction there. That's really great. Yeah, it's like, it, it makes me think of that Stephen King quote, and I'm this is just off the top of my head, so it's not gonna be word perfect, but he says something along the lines of, you know, books are like a portable magic. And that, yes. that's so true, that's so true. It's a portal into another world. And sometimes it's a portal into a world that you thought you didn't wanna go, but then when you get there, you just wanna settle down and, and stay a while and maybe come back mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Okay, Absolutely. so um, moving on, listeners, mm -hmm. maybe you picked up on the fact that this podcast opened and it, 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 it wasn't me talking about Spencer and sharing all his books or his <laughs> likes or dislikes, anything like that, you know, uh, giving that rundown. Because honestly, when I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm listening to an author or, or a director or, or whoever is being interviewed and I don't know them, all that stuff just flies over my head. I don't care. Uh, it's not really until you know someone that you start to care about those sort of things. So I would rather 
you as the listener, if you don't know Spencer, to get to know him as we go through this conversation. So some of the questions that I'm going to be asking him here um, will, will help you get to know him, I, I think, on a deeper level than just sharing the names of his books and what he likes and dislikes. Um, <laughs> and a lot of these questions, too, are from you, dear listeners. I know this is the first episode, but I've been talking it up on Instagram. And some of you have sent in some questions uh, that you wanted me to specifically ask Spencer. And so first off, Spencer, do you remember the first horror fiction that you ever wrote? I do. And that is because... I've published it, but so, <laughs> so, so I was trying to think back. I've, I've written kind of my whole life and, um, but for a long time, I read exclusively YA fantasy. And so I got it into my head that I was going to be a fantasy author. And for several years, that's what I wrote. But then I took this, uh, workshop when I was 17 at the local community college. Um, it was a short story writing workshop. And we got our first short story assignment. And I was sitting there, I remember I was sitting in bed trying to think of a story idea. And I think that at the time I had just read one of my favorites, um, Joyce Carol Oates's uh, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Um, I had just read that short story, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's, um, was what his, his fiction was very, um, influential to me. And I had read Goosebumps as a kid and I loved watching scary movies and, um, but a, a part of those movies was also the anthology shows, um, like Tales from the Crypt. And so I think there was already this idea, um, incepted into my brain that, that, uh, short stories are the perfect medium to tell a scary story. Yeah. You know, you got your campfire tales, um, you got all of these things that work really short because they, they get the knife in and then they twist it real quick. And so I was sitting in bed trying to think of an idea and I thought of this idea that turned into the dreams of Alexis Wilde, which is in my first collection, Kitchen Sink. And um, it's, it's pretty wild that the very first horror story I wrote when I was 17 ended up in my first published book, uh, 12 and a half years later. And um, I'm also very happy to say there were three stories that I wrote in that workshop. This is kind of a tangent, but um, when I was 17, there was The Dreams of Alexis Wilde, and then I wrote The Movie Massacre, and then I wrote Maybe Tomorrow, which are all in Kitchen Sink and have all appeared in reviewers' lists of their favorite stories, which was really validating to me because mm -hmm you know, when you're compiling this book, my first instinct was, well, nobody's going to want to read the shit that I wrote when I was 17, Yeah. you know? Um, but it just shows you how, uh, how ingrained in our collective subconscious, this idea of the short horror story really is, you know, I was, I was writing horror before I even knew that I liked horror. Wow. That's cool, man. 
And, um, you know, that's sometimes that's just how it goes. We have our the subconscious is is a powerful thing. And whatever's in there really is. Yeah, it's going (laughs) to come out. It's going to come out. Um, Okay, so you've been you've been writing horror then for for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that one of the most common questions asked of of readers to authors is where do you find inspiration for your stories and and somebody sent this question in from from instagram and so i want to ask you that but also i i would like if if you're willing to do so to maybe use this as an opportunity to lead us into a discussion about your book the fear because i know that in talking to you you have shared that so many of the, the 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 scenes, the specific scenes in that book, and especially the setting, are straight out of your daily life and the the things mm-hmm. that you experience living in Texas and going through the the pandemic. So, um, l- lead us down that road. Where do you find the inspiration for your stories, and then dovetail into the fear, so we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, yeah. So the the inspiration question the the question that that writers will uh be answering until the end of time um is essentially in my opinion um never going to be satisfied (laughs) because because it's different for everyone and often the answer is a shrug of the shoulders and everywhere because as writers you know we are we have, we are observers. Um, it sounds really pretentious, but you know, we are the, we are observers of the human condition. And, uh, we also, uh, are constantly beat with probably the number one advice given to writers, which is write what you know. And so for me, it's really an osmosis of, of my, lived experience you know what I pick up from stories that I consume um what I pick up from the people I know and what I live through myself and so so yeah you wanted me to transition into the fear uh and that one is actually I think a very uh singular example because I think it might be the only time when we find ourselves, I I should say, hopefully, it's the only time we find ourselves all collectively living through this traumatic experience. And so, you know, riding the fear, like you had said, um, it takes place in Austin, which I had just moved to before the pandemic. And, so, so in my book, it is these two women who have just moved to Austin um, right before the pandemic hit and everything closes down. And um, they live in this apartment um, that is kind of this anomaly in this uh, rich neighborhood that's in the valleys of, of these, these vast mountains. And for me, I found myself stuck inside, just like everyone else, and no job, no work to keep me occupied. 
and I needed to find a way to get through this. And so, so writing the fear in that way was one of the most cathartic things that I've done. And I mean, I, it's, it's like you said, I literally just took my life and wrote about it. You know, um, I took my apartment, I took precise stories um, that I'd heard from my neighbors at this apartment complex and, and put some of my neighbors in the book and, and all these <laughs> things. And um, there was a time where I had no idea how I was going to do my laundry because I didn't have any quarters. And I finally found a bank that had opened so I could go inside with a mask on and, and try to get some quarters. And they're like, oh, the Federal Reserve has, has uh, stopped minting coins, so we can't give you any. And I was just like living in this moment where I didn't know how to do my laundry, which is such a strange uh, problem to have, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, this is going in the book, you know, little things like that. Um, and I think most of all, I do think that it is this unique experience that everyone can identify with. Um, but most of all, it was hugely helpful to me while I was writing it. Mm. You know, it was, it was my therapy. It was my stress ball that I was squeezing uh, until we were out of this thing. And well, I should say until I thought we'd be out of this thing, but you know, I published it a good uh, almost a full year before um, I was vaccinated, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, so much of what you said just now is just one of those examples where life is stranger than fiction. I mean, mm -hmm. who, who would have thought that someday you'd make a statement like, so I was able to, you know, put a mask on and go into the bank. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. They wanted you to wear a mask <laughs> to yeah. go into a bank. Um, <laughs> but um, so, and oh, go ahead. That, that's, that's the other thing about this book is I feel like if 2020 hadn't happened, um, people would have read this book and been like, get the fuck out of here. This is, this is ridiculous. So fake. And um, in fact, <laughs> one of my favorite reviews that I've received for the book uh, said that the most unrealistic part of the book was that there was a fire station just up the street from this apartment. And I was like, that's awesome because that is, that is based on my reality. There is a <laughs> firehouse just a few blocks up, even though I'm in this secluded area, you know? And so it's just, it's so funny to me that real life can be so bizarre sometimes that it's unbelievable. Yeah. 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 So I've gathered a few quotes that, you know, I, I have read The Fear. You know, this was, this was actually one of the first indie horror books that I ever read. And hey. I am, yeah. <laughs> well, and you honestly- reading afterward? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you were one of the first indie authors that I ever met and got to know um, on the Instagram, the, the Bookstagram sphere. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah this, this whole thing has really come full circle. But, you know, I'm, I'm one of those, those people that some of, some of you, dear listeners, will just curse me and think I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but I read books with a highlighter 
and I go through and and I highlight. Now, <laughs> I will say this: I do not crease the pages as a bookmark. I don't fold down the top corner. I do use bookmarks, and I specifically seek out Bible highlighters. They make these uh, these these highlighters that are more like <laughs> colored pencils almost. So I'm not using an actual marker that is bleeding through the page. But anyways, I go through and yeah, I you're like a, to... you're a monster. You're not a psychopath. Yes, exactly, exactly. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> we need to make that distinction clear. Um, yes. So as as Thomas Gloom, the author slash monster, went through this book, I did I highlighted a few things, and so. <laughs> I want to I want to share a few of those quotes and just ask you some questions um, based off of those. And the first one that I highlighted was right smack dab at the beginning of the book. I think it's on page two, uh, but it says this: "Hateful people stalked everywhere in every habitat, like demons with skin masks to hide the telltale signs of the nightmare beneath." Um, first off beautiful uh beautiful sentence there i think that that is a a good example of what literary horror can do and what it looks like but um well, beyond you. that i i want to ask you so i you know in a lot of our 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 talking in the past you yeah. know we've opened up about our our personal lives and and our own personal past and i know that you were raised within mormonism and mm -hmm. you experienced a lot of negativity within organized religion. And so if you if you don't mind sharing, just tell me a little bit about how those experiences within Mormonism have affected you moving forward, but more specifically, how has that influenced your writing? Yeah, well, so I think it's important to start off with the distinction that this was my experience. I know that many people have experienced uh, very different and positive things um, in, in similar situations. But for me, uh, I think it informs my writing in ways that I'm sometimes not even conscious of. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, who I am as a person has been shaped by having grown up in a community where I felt that not only was my opinion uh, almost taboo, um, not, not the specific opinion that I had, but just the idea that somebody could have an opinion was taboo. Um, not only that, but I feel like I wasn't taught to uh, think critically. So I wasn't able to recognize a lot of the things that I was going through until I had already come out of it on the other side. And in, in my twenties, I was kind of sifting through all these things that I hadn't realized uh, one were <laughs> uh, pretty damaging to the human experience, I think. Um, and, and two, have shaped me in ways such as, um, you know, oh, this, this is why I tend to rebel against, against any, kind of, um, any kind of organization, you know? Um, this is why I love to write about uh, found family because 
um, with my experience specifically in Mormonism, their, their biggest tenant um, that they like to uh, tell their members is that family is forever. And um, what I've found specifically in my family is that Mormonism has made it so that um, the opposite is true, you know? And, and so in my own writings, I love to write about found family. I love to write about um, breaking free from any kind of constrictions um, or perceived uh, shackles um, or any kind of um, reclamation of your autonomy, you know? Um, those are really big in my writing. Um, and I don't think that that was conscious on my part. I think I found myself kind of exercising my own demons through my writing. And, and a lot of that was exercising the demons that my, uh, my childhood indoctrination gave me, you know? Mm, yeah. I really like that. You know, I'm a big believer that, you know, there is a lot of freedom that comes about through writing and through reading and processing, you know, and that's why mm -hmm. I, I, I love the horror genre so much because you can look at those topics that are deeper um, that are sometimes taboo when, you know, I, I know that in episode two, I'm going to have Haley Newland on here and we're going to be talking about mental health and horror. And I know Excellent. we really vibe together on, mm -hmm. on that because we both view horror as an opportunity, you know, as, as a writer, it's, it's great for me to process and great for me to heal and sort of face my own demons. But I'm really hoping that anybody that reads my writing can also face some of those demons and, and, and find victory, find freedom in their own life outside of the fictional world. And so it, it sounds like, you know, you've, you've done a lot of that as well. And I definitely picked up on that in, in your writing. And, um, you know, the, the second quote that I want to read from there sort of piggybacks off of some of what you've already been saying. Uh, but it, okay. it, it says, this was exactly the crowd Jacqueline had hoped to see. People already walking on the far side of normal and thus less likely to sneer at two women holding hands. And so, you know, my, my question attached to this is, you know, why is it that many of the people that are considered weird or strange <laughs> in the eyes of society are usually the most accepting and, and some of the most genuine and kindest souls? You know, I've, I've personally experienced this within the horror community. Um, so what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Why does that tend to be the case? Well, I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about is hitting on this, uh, this reciprocal dynamic of storytelling. You know, I'm writing uh, to exercise my own experiences, but I'm also writing for the readers to connect with me. Um, and I think that a lot of people who have been uh, ostracized or who feel unaccepted or anything like that, they want to project um, the same kind of acceptance and uh, and celebration of, of who they are onto other people who may feel similarly, uh, similarly, uh, you know, not in the right skin or, or whatever it is. So yeah, I do. I feel like uh, people who who tend to be in those groups have 
learned uh, by being given the opposite example of what they uh, want to cultivate, yes. you know? Um, and so like that, that paragraph or that, that line that you just read from the fear, I was specifically talking about Austin because Austin, you know, um, uh, keep it weird, <laughs> you know, that's, that's Austin's creed. And, uh, I think that they, they, they celebrate and, and shout, uh, across the rooftops, um, about their, their weirdness, essentially. Um, and you're talking and about think, Austin, Texas, right? Yes, this is Austin, Texas, which is surrounded by places that I think have made Austin what it is. Mm. You know, it's uh, the majority of Texas would probably be the antithesis of what Austin is, you know, and, and I think that they've kind of fed into each other that way. Wow. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, Totally. And, and I think that you see that within the horror community. A lot of us, you know, maybe in our lives, maybe as we were in school, we were sort of outcasts or, or outsiders mm -hmm. or we were bullied or we were made fun of because of the things that we liked. And then we come together and, and we realize, especially that's the beauty of, of you know, there, there's a lot of negativity that can be attached with social media. But I also think, especially with Instagram, especially with Bookstagram, especially within the horror sphere within Bookstagram, we have found this community of like-minded folks that, that believe in horror and, and see it as more than just schlock, you know? And mm -hmm. it's just like, wow, these other people that I've had very similar experiences to me, they have similar likes. And now we can get, a, get together and nerd out and talk about this stuff that I had to, you know, I have to stay quiet about when I get in, you know, family gatherings. I had to stay quiet about it, you know, growing up in church or in school or wherever the thing might be. And now we have found that, that freedom. We've been given this safe place, this safe space to talk about these things that we love. Yeah, and to take that a step further, the the books, the horror bookstagram specifically has been possibly the most accepting group that I've ever encountered, and I think that a big part of that goes to books. I should say, fiction specifically is kind of an exercise in empathy. Mm. You know, we are we are reading about these these people, uh, not just living separate lives from our own, but going through separate trials than we have. And so I do think that um, there's there's a correlation between um, uh, accepting and and uh, between accepting people and uh, reading novels. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I am an empath to the nth degree. And a lot of people have picked up on that in my writing. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate that when, when they say that. And even, even when it comes to somebody that I don't like or somebody whose opinions that I, I don't agree with, or maybe even I feel that they are toxic, I think that there is a, a, a power in still having dialogue or trying to understand maybe where they're coming from or what has pushed them to that position. 
Um, and that doesn't mean I have to still, you know, I, I'm not going to agree with them at the end of the day, but at least I have a little bit of, you know, understanding. And, you know, when it, when it comes to like serial killers and whatnot, usually they aren't born, you know, they're, they're created, they're made because of their mm -hmm. life experience the things that have been done to them. And, and yeah, you know, that's just a part of, of, of empathy, being open to that other people's experiences and what have led them to their different viewpoints, their, 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 their different ways of living. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that that leads us, uh, that, that sets us up for this next quote um, that I'm going to read. It's a little bit longer, but I, I really think it's powerful. So let me read it and then I'll, I'll share why I, I pulled out this specific one. She closed her eyes, thinking of Ash, her wife, her love. Marrying Ash had banished that shameful fear of her sexuality to swear her devotion to not a man or a woman, but to a person, her person. And she wasn't going to let her imagination conjure up some bigoted asshole like the cardigan man to make her doubt herself or her wife. Her body was her own. Now, as a writer myself, um, this excerpt seems like it is deeply personal to you. I, I can just sense that in these words and the way that it's put mm -hmm. together. Um, yeah. And so you've recently come out and, and been pretty candid uh, on Bookstagram mm -hmm. about your sexuality. And so I just, I want to ask you, you know, how did writing this specific book, The Fear, how did writing this book help you to come to terms with that truth about yourself? Well, it was a pretty wild journey. I'll say that. Um, and it kind of ties in with a lot of things we've already talked about. Um, first, you know, I was writing it during the pandemic and it was very much a, an exercise in essentially journaling through my, my mental health, you know? And, and so there was a lot of introspection time. Um, and I think that there was also a lot of subconscious, uh, sloughing off of, of my own fears into these characters' lives and that I didn't pick up on until later. And um, I think very much my writing themes of Jack's fear of who she is, a, a lot of that was me um, writing through my own thoughts. Um, like obliquely, like I, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at them head on. And, um, you know, with Jack specifically, she grew up in a very conservative household, um, that taught her these quote unquote, uh, normal, uh, ways to live in society. And, essentially in doing so they taught her that who she is on a very very deep personal level is uh, something to be ashamed of and I really wanted to speak on that just myself as as somebody who is very passionate about um you know the 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 type of activism that touches on LGBTQ rights. And, and so I, I really wanted to speak on that in this book because I felt it was a, a pretty, um, pretty big part of the last few years 
uh, in this country specifically. And, and then on the other side of things, I was also writing about my upbringing, um, which we've talked about a bit here, where I was essentially being taught to gaslight myself. You know, I was, I was being taught doublethink, <laughs> essentially, um, where for years I would explain away things in my own head. Um, and it was all to maintain this even keel of normalcy. Like, you know, Spencer, you, you don't fit outside of the norm. Uh, get over yourself. This is just, uh, you know, you, you think that that, uh, that dude is attractive because you look up to him or some, some kind of form of um, essentially invalidating yourself. And I was given those tools and they stayed in my head for years. And it really wasn't until I wrote the fear that I started to really analyze um, and question where those tools came from and, and whether or not I am honest when I, yield, when I wield them. Um, and so, yeah, when I was writing Jack's experience of um, being told for years that she wasn't queer, but knowing deep down that that is where she feels most comfortable. Um, I, I, I realized that it really spoke to me. So I, I, have a, I have a friend who was a sensitivity reader for the fear, Cecilia, and I talked to her quite a bit about this, about these feelings that I was having. Um, because she, to be honest, she is the source of uh, most of my education when it comes to um, activism in general and, and when it comes to um, progressing society to a place where we can question these things. And so I was just, I was asking her, hey, um, I'm feeling these things. Uh, can you help? talk me through them because I'm not used to being honest with myself about these things. And it, I mean, it was, it was, it was a wild trip. I, that it is so strange to me even now, how monumentally significant to me personally, writing the fear was, you know, it was sure it was my debut novel um, which is a big thing for any author. Um, but behind the scenes, it meant a lot more um, uh, apart from the actual book, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's, that's powerful stuff, man. I, and, and it just, it goes to show the, the power in, in writing. And I'm sure that many other people who have read this book have uh, probably come to you with, with saying similar things. And there's probably a lot of comfort. There's a lot of power in the, in this book. And, you know, once again, when you look at society as a whole, they would write off horror as not being capable of doing any <laughs> of these positive works in, in the life and the psyche of human beings. But here we go talking about horror and talking about these 
these, you know, breaking bonds and, and, and learning more about ourselves and, and, and setting boundaries in terms of toxic individuals and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, man, horror. It, it's, it's, it's this, this well that runs very, very deep, very, very Preach, deep. man. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so the final quote I want to read, um, it really, it's, I, I don't even know if there's much to say about it at this point, because the reason why I wanted to read this quote is because I also believe, at least it's my experience, for me, writing is cathartic. Um, it helps me <laughs> process, it helps empty my brain. You know, mine, I have the kind of brain that's just like, go, 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 go. It's never, it never shuts off. And when I write, I can sort of get a little bit of a break. Um, you know, I, I've got to go right back to it the next day. Um, but I read this quote and once again, I'm just like, oh, this is, this is profoundly personal. And so this is actually, this is near the end of the book, but it says, sometimes you just can't see something fully from every angle and perspective until you've written it out in ink and clarified your thoughts until your hand starts to cramp. And, you know, I, I've definitely had those, those moments, those experiences, you know, there are a couple of stories, short stories that I've written where I wrote it all in one sitting. It was just like, it was just like pouring out of me and I couldn't turn it off until it was done. Um, but I, I mean, yeah. clearly from a lot of what you shared and what you've said already, you feel the same way. I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about that. Yeah, well, I actually think this is probably the least personal of the quotes that you've read. Um, and I say that because what I was specifically thinking about when I wrote that was my, my partner every morning, uh, will take out a notebook and write by hand three pages of morning thoughts, uh, processes and these sorts of things. And I had been taught at a young age that journaling is very helpful, but I, because I was taught as a kid uh, to journal, I have steered very far away from it. And so it's not really my style, which I think is why so much of my personal life uh, surfaces in my fiction, because that is an easier way for me to, uh, to discover myself is through characters. Um, but in, in that quote, Ash is journaling. And, and so, um, so that's, that's what I was thinking of. I, I do think it's powerful. It's just not something that I have, uh, trained myself to, to give a go yet, you know, but Hey, maybe, maybe next time I'll be on here, like, you know, being the, the, the evangelist of, uh, of journaling, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, man, I'm so glad you said that because like, I feel the same way I've tried. Mm -hmm. I try to journal and I just can't, but it all comes out of my writing. Like so Mm -hmm. much of my writing is based on personal experiences, things that I've witnessed. And, and so, you know, honestly, we are journaling. It's just a different, it's just a different medium, I I guess you could say. Boom. Yep. Um, Okay. So that was the like long 30 plus minute answer to uh, where do you find inspiration to your stories? Um, but no, no, I mean, I, I set you up. I, I definitely, I wanted to talk about the fear. Um, but For now sure. that we've, we've talked about that and, and, and listeners who don't know you, I think at this point probably know you a little, a little better. I want to ask you a couple questions that are, are more connected with 
the, the process of writing and with your craft. Um, yeah. so another question that I got from Instagram was, do you have a method to the madness that is your writing? Now, I read that exactly how it was written. So I don't know if this was just a vague <laughs> thing about authors or this person knows you specifically and, 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 and knows the madness that is, is connected with the pages of your books. Um, but what, what sort of methods do you use when it comes to, to writing, to, to prepping, to getting it on paper, to you know, finally getting it out there into the world? What does that look like? Well, this is another question that I think is going to be asked until the end of time because it's different for everyone. But for me, it took me several years to not just settle on a process, but to figure out uh, for myself what uh, what the patterns were in what I was doing. And, and so now a story or an idea really has to marinate. Uh, I don't write it down for a long time. It just, it really needs to sit in my brain um, for a while before I feel comfortable uh, trying to, to shape it. And, um, but then in the actual writing, uh, most, most authors will say that the first draft is shit and you just got to turn it out. And, um, the, the real writing comes during the drafting or the, during the revision, I mean. And uh, for me though, I just can't divorce my, uh, my perfectionism, I guess, from my first drafts. Yeah, okay, you're pointing at yourself, you, you get me then. And, and so, I don't know, it was, it was very validating when I listened to an interview and Paul Tremblay says that he writes 500 words a day and will perfect those 500 words before he goes on. So when he types the end, um, he essentially is finished with his book. And that is very much not the case for most authors, but yeah. that is how I find my own writing is. So I'll, I'll write down a first draft and I, I go pretty slow. Um, and then whenever I've finished my day's writing, I will read it to my partner who also happens to me to be my editor. Um, uh, we both have the exact same jobs. We are editors by day, authors by night, and together we can essentially uh, check Call each other's blind world. spots. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh, yeah, no, no, that's what I meant. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'll, I'll read out loud uh, my, my day's writing to my partner and we'll then discuss character motivations and we'll discuss what needs to happen next. Um, usually I will go through and change things as I read it out loud and then go through and polish things up after I've read it. And, uh, so by the time I finished the book, uh, it's, I wouldn't say that it's as polished as, uh, Paul Tremblay described for his books, but um, my first draft, second draft, and third draft are all kind of wrapped together in one big draft, and and so, you know, that's just, I, that's a very specific uh, example of my process, but that is how how I've learned to work. I can't outline um, because I need to get into my character's shoes to see if a decision they make in the story makes sense. I can't just 
uh, write a, a brief outline and be like, oh, well, then they decide they don't like this. So they have to go and do this thing. I, I really can't do that because I need to be in the scene before I can see their motivations and choose the decision that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can outline, but I'm very open to making changes as I go. Like I don't have and that's to great. stick with yeah. it. Um, but I know other people, it's just like, once they've got the outline, it's rigid. That's what they're sticking with. Um, mm -hmm. You know, others just flying by the seat of their pants. Like everybody's different. Um, but I do, I relate with what you were saying too, about when, when you're writing, you take it slow. And uh, there's sort of advice that I always hear from craft books and, and, and from other authors. It has to do with this concept that you have to just let your creative brain flow, just let the words flow through you and turn off the editing brain. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. My editing yeah. brain is always on. And it's even yeah. on when I'm reading other people's material. Like I just, I can't turn it off. Um, and it sounds like you're, you're a similar way, but Hey, you know, we've got some books out there. So, you know, <laughs> for those of you listeners, you know, maybe you are writing, maybe you're thinking about writing you got to find what's right for you. Listen to other advice, try other things. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a mishmash. You're going to take some advice from me. You're going to take some advice from Spencer. You're going to leave a lot of advice from me. You're going to leave a lot of advice from Spencer. You're going to read, you know, something in on writing from Stephen King, who is prolific and well-respected, knows how to get a book published. And you're going to take some of the stuff that he writes and say, this doesn't work for me and throw it out. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, it works for you in that book specifically, you know, it's, it's kind of like where, where King says, don't use adverbs. Yeah. And then right after he says, but you know, I fucking use adverbs. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so All the it's time. And now I always hear them when I'm like listening to an audiobook <laughs> by him, they stand out. And I'm just like, really? You son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be like, you son of a bitch. He said <laughs> angrily. <laughs> There's an exclamation point at the end of that quotation. Did you really need that, Mr. King? <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Um, okay, so, and tied in with that, too, another question. Uh, when, when you do have a story idea, you said you like to let it simmer in your head. Mm -hmm. But are, yeah. are there any things that you might ask yourself before you start writing it? Like, it's been in between simmering and writing. Are there any things that you might ask yourself or think about before you actually put pen to paper or finger to, to keyboard? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I guess, I guess it goes to the answer I gave at the beginning of the show about my definition of literary horror. You know, I, I ask myself how I want to tell this story. Um, so the form, um, you know, on a very uh, micro level, you have to, you have to decide whether you're writing it in past tense or present tense, for example. Or are you writing first person? Are you, uh, I think the last short story that I wrote was a, a Twitter thread, <laughs> you know? So it, it was written as if the character was typing out a Twitter thread. And, mm. and I had to make that decision before I wrote the story. Um, and then another one is, is, is theme. And for me, I usually answer the theme through character. So uh, the, the two things that I need to decide before I start to write a story is one, how am I going to tell it? You know, what's the format? Um, and two, uh, who is this character that's telling the story? Um, or the character the story is about if they're not the one telling it. And, and for me, those are 
almost always the two questions that I have to answer every time. Sometimes there's other variables that I take into account, but it always comes back, especially character. I think uh, when I first started writing, so like a good half of Kitchen Sink was written when I didn't quite understand that character is really the most important part of storytelling. And, uh, and so a lot of my stories were specifically just an exercise on a concept or idea that I had, you know, they're an experiment. And it wasn't until I was compiling kitchen sink, um, in some cases, 12 years after I'd written that story, or that idea, um, that experiment, and I, I had to sit down with my editor and find the find the core of the story and I realized that it was always character and um which is funny it's funny that I took so long to realize that (laughs) because you know when you when you watch a show like I think uh tv in particular is the perfect example of this when you watch a show the reason why tv is becoming such a big medium besides the you know, the budgets and the CGI is, is, uh, is you now have this chance to follow around this character for far more than a a two hour movie. Mm. And so you can really get to know them. And uh, so, you know, really, I think the reason why we as, as a species are drawn to storytelling is because of character. And so that's, that's usually what I try to answer before I start to write. Yeah. And when it's more long form, you, you, you feel as if you're building a relationship Mm -hmm. with that character. And that's why, you know, when you and I were talking about this show and the format, uh, why I didn't try to like fit it into a time scale, because, you know, I want people to feel like they're building a relationship with you listening to this. And so, you know, you as the, the, the character, if you will, you're, you're, you're guiding this and this will be as long as it needs to be or as short as it needs to be. And um, I, I think there's power in that. Um, Absolutely. You, you cut yourself off at the knees when, when you try to box yourself in or make it short. And, and that's also, you know, within, I, I know that within the indie writing sphere, Everybody's talking about series, series, series. Everybody wants series, series sell. And once again, it's because it's episodic usually. It, it, it's sort of like a TV show. You get to live and breathe these, with these characters. And by the end of it, like, you know so much about them. And that, you know, that, that warms our black little hearts. <laughs> yeah, you get a true return on investment when you have invested in a character and there's a whole series with that character, yeah. you know? Yeah. Okay, so you've let the story stew, you've written mm-hmm. it down, you've got it through editors, now you're ready to publish it. You hit publish, and that book goes out there into the world. Your baby is now being held by the hands of all these other folks. How do you, oh, deal, how do you deal with the, the anxiety? Uh, I, I know that for me, personally, you know, I, I'm just like, are they going to like it? Are, are, are they, are they going to hate it? Are they going to understand it? Are they going to miss this? Are they going to pick up on that? All these different questions are rushing through. And I know that even Stephen King, he talks about this in On Writing. 
even though he has sold millions upon millions of books, he still deals with this. And he tells this story of, you know, when he gives his book over to his wife, Tabby, to read. And, and you know, he's sometimes just watching her, seeing if she'll smile, seeing how she breathes while she's reading. And she'll snap at him and be like, stop being so damn needy. Um, you know, how, how do you deal with that neediness? Or maybe you don't have it. Maybe you're just a, a, a cyborg. How, how is it for you? What, what's release day in those, those following weeks like for Spencer Hamilton? How do I deal with it poorly? No, um, <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, just like anything else, it's a process. And so where I'm at right now is very different uh, than where I was at when I hadn't put out the fear. And I, I, I bring up the fear specifically because if you've read it, you know that it, it has a lot of polarizing ideas, um, or I shouldn't say ideas, but it is a very polarizing book um, because I didn't shy away from writing about the politics of um, that slice of, of, um, of reality. Um, and so I knew when I put the book out that I would have strong detractors, um, regardless of that knowledge though, when I got my first scathing review, it fucking killed me. Mm -hmm. And 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 so it was it was a bit of an existential crisis, and um, I was talking to you know the the people close to me and important to me whose opinions I really valued in this, and they helped me realize that, uh, in a way, once an artist puts out um, their piece, they they have said everything they set out to say, and so now really the only true way to um to to utilize what you're doing you know you are creating something and then giving it to others um properly is to sit back and allow readers to um build their own relationship with your book you know you can't be on the sidelines um constantly explaining what you wrote um, if that's the, if that's the case, then you weren't clear enough in your writing, you know? <laughs> and, and so for me, realizing that the book does not belong to me anymore, phrasing it that way really helped me embrace all opinions of my book. So now when I get, um, a new review, I don't go in crossing my fingers that it's going to be a five-star review that raves about it. Um, I don't go in dreading um, criticism. Uh, I, in fact, hope to one day just be able to not look at reviews at all. <laughs> and um, I'm not there yet um, as, you know, as a beginning author, uh, you've put out at this point, I've put out three of my quote-unquote babies, and um, and so I can't help myself. You know, I have to peek and see how people are taking it. Um, but yeah, that's how I see it. I see dealing with my <clears throat> my anxieties, my doubts, and everything. It's a very personal thing. It's not something that I have to involve readers with. Um, my opinion of my books 
can often change um, pretty regularly. You know, I think even when a book is out, you're still on that roller coaster. Um, there have been times in the um, near year that the fear has been out that that I just I hate the book. And there have been times when I love it again. And and there are times when I'm indifferent and I just don't want to think about it. I want to focus on what's next. And um, and so I guess I'm just trying to allow myself to live in those spaces um, without um, without forcing those thoughts on people who are reading my book or planning to read it. You know, I've, I, I should be able to live with the book um, representing everything I wanted to say, mm. you know, and, and that means not saying anymore. Um, now I say that while inter being interviewed about the book where I'm going to say stuff about the book, yeah. but you know, it's, it's very different. I'd like to think that the people listening to this, um, we're seeking out, uh, you know, um, supplementary material. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as a huge Star Wars fan, I can't help but think that this is a message that George Lucas really needed to hear about 20 years ago <laughs> with the, the special editions, because it wasn't just about making the special effects look better. There were things that were that changed the damn story. Um, <laughs> let, let your baby go. Um, but yeah. another thing too, is I love, you know, going back a few minutes ago, you were talking about some of the content in your book, uh, and, and how some of it could possibly be, you know, maybe divisive in, in people's minds. And also you use the word slice. And for me, I will never be able to look at a pair of scissors, uh, in the <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about this, this book, but there's a scene in the fear involving scissors <laughs> and dear God. Spencer Hamilton, what is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> um, okay. Spencer Hamilton, what is wrong with you? Can I can I can I put that quote on my next cover? Yes, please? thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, beautiful segue, Spencer. It's like you're a pro at this. Um, talking <laughs> talking about next covers. Uh, tell me a little bit about Smiley Land. Mm, okay. Well. So, so my next book, which uh, is probably out by now, uh, the listeners are, are hearing me talk about this. It's out uh, for free. Go get it. Uh, all you need is to go to my newsletter and, and you get this, this book called Welcome to Smiley Land. And essentially... Where do they find your newsletter? Your website? Uh, thank you. Yes, spencerhamiltonbooks.com is uh the best way to find my newsletter um so so yeah essentially when i was putting out the fear i knew that i wanted to have a free book to give to people um as an incentive to join a list where they can get updates about my work and um i went to a pre-made cover website and found this, this cover with this image of a smiley face with the skull peeking through and blood around it and stuff. And uh, almost instantly, this world built up around it, around this uh, abandoned amusement park called Smiley Land. And I knew that I wanted to write a slasher 
I'd been reading a lot of Stephen Graham Jones. He's kind of the uh, the resident expert in slashers when it comes to um, horror fiction, and and so I wanted to you know give it a try myself. So I wrote Welcome to Smiley Land. Uh, it's this slasher set in the 90s in an abandoned amusement park and then uh a big surprise to myself i know i wasn't planning this um this whole world built up around smiley land so now um i have another smiley land centered short story called smile at the good times we had that was just published in the blood rights horror anthology welcome to the fun house um I have uh, another Smiley Land comic published in a, a magazine called Spine. Um, I have an, another one planned for a future release. I have a short story also planned and, and a novel and all these things that are kind of, that are blossoming out from this one image of a fucked up smiley face. And so I'm I'm very excited. I I really had just meant this as a one-off free novella that I could give people. Um, but and while I'm still doing that, I'm not denying myself the pleasures of exploring this world more. So you know, grab the book and expect a lot more to happen um, around Smiley Land and Mr. Smiley himself. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I love how that sort of stuff happens. Uh, I, I have a number of, of story ideas or stories that I've already written that it was just one image, one thought mm -hmm. that popped into my head or, or uh, appeared before my eyes. And then it just builds and builds and builds and builds. And the longer it sits in the, the stew pot, uh, the more those those flavors meld and and uh, yeah, it's it's awesome, man. Um, it's yeah, and a, a speaking thing. speaking on on that a little more, like me personally, I love writing my books to the cover. So like I like I I love having the cover already made when I'm drafting the project. It's how I wrote the fear. Um, it's how I'm going, it's how I wrote Welcome to Smiley Land. It's how I'm going to be writing my next novel, Hive, and, and all these things where it's not, it's not how it's traditionally done, but it informs the writing so much. Yeah. You know, those skulls on the fear cover. If you've read the book, you know that I use those skulls as a motif. And I don't think that I would have if, uh, if I didn't have that cover you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think it's a really cool, uh, almost writing hack, you know? Yeah. It's free inspiration. Well, not free, but you know, once you paid for the cover, it's inspiration. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, <laughs> no, I, I agree because I had that same experience with my last release with Voodoo Child. Mm -hmm. I've told yeah. you before, you know, I had this three chapter ending that I wasn't super proud of, but then when I got my cover from the wonderful Alex Fuller, I will plug her here. Um, 
it changed everything. It gave me this new concept for an ending. And so I scrapped those three chapters and it turned into seven chapters. And a lot of people that have enjoyed the book, they've mentioned the ending. And that the was ending's all great. Just, it was from art, you know, the cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think that it stops there either. Like when I got the cover for the fear, the book was called viral and uh, you can still see that original cover um, on my Instagram if you scroll far enough. But uh, <clears throat> so I got the cover where I had called the book viral and I told the designer what the book was about. And that was the image that he created. And then when I was writing the book and I used that image as a, as a recurring theme throughout, um, I realized that the main theme of this book was not uh, that things can be can be caught, you know, that it was not viral. Mm. Um, what what I was really speaking about was fear being viral. So so I I changed the title and yeah. and I don't think that the book would exist in quite this way without that uh, almost conversation that I had with the cover. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, um, I'm going to start to slowly land this haunted plane ride. Um, oh, have we hit five hours yet? <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> no, but I want to ask you two questions, and you will be the first to be asked this, but I want to ask these questions of everybody that I have on here. Um, for those of you listening, you will probably pick up in, in the intro and soon you're going to hear this outro, which I hope will blow your mind and also make you laugh a little bit. Um, but I am huge on Stephen King and John Carpenter. They are massive influences on, on just my love of horror, the genre and, and mm -hmm. my writing as well. And so I, I wanted to ask you in something that I'm going to call the carpenter's shed um i want to ask you what is your favorite john carpenter movie it is absolutely the thing the thing yeah the thing is one of my all-time favorite horror movies um every time somebody asks me for my top three or five or ten the thing is on that list mm. yeah the thing is it's awesome you know and some people don't realize this but it's a remake um, mm -hmm. In the original film, The Thing, you can actually, some of y'all, even if you haven't seen the film, you've seen bits of it without even knowing because it's actually the movie that's playing on the TV in John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> anyways, but John Carpenter's The Thing, it, Kurt Russell and just this amazing role that he was built for. And he's got the long hair and he's got the beard and he's just rough and tough and, and, and playing with fire. Um, but it's cold. Everything is cold. They're in the, in the middle of nowhere and it's freezing and there's snow everywhere. And you feel all of that. But for me personally, beyond the writing, beyond the acting, beyond the amazing special effects for the time, the soundtrack, mm -hmm. the soundtrack and especially mm. the theme song for that movie is so good. And it's one of the songs that I have in my writing playlist because it's so, it, it's just, it, it sets the tone and you feel the, 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 the theme of that movie in, in those chords, in that synth. 
Um, so yeah, the thing is definitely high on my list for Carpenter films as well. Yeah, and I think uh, <clears throat> one of my upcoming projects is uh, my next novel. It's called Hive, and it's based on the opening story in Kitchen Sink, and it has a lot of um, themes of transformation, and it deals with mm. just you know how fucking terrifying uh, insects are when you when you really think about it. You know, how and alien. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I think when I write Hive, I'm going to be exclusively jamming out to the thing and the fly and alien, you know. And um, but yeah, the thing's music is just chef's kiss from start to finish. Yes. Well, let me lead you by the hand from <laughs> <laughs> the carpenter's shed to something that I like to call the king's corner. <laughs> and once again, Stephen King, I, I mean, you really, you, you can't talk to a horror lover, whether it's movies, whether it, it, it's, it's books, that they don't list King as an influence. And yeah. so let me ask you, as, as a reader, as an author, as a horror fan, what is your favorite King book and why? Oh, well, I guess I should, I should start by saying that I've not read all of King's works. I've read maybe 55 of them and I've got like 20 left, but um, absolutely my favorite King work is it. It is perhaps my favorite horror novel ever written. Um, I think that it is his masterpiece. I think it's his thesis on fear. And uh, yeah, I've, it's besides on writing, it is the only Stephen King book that I've read twice. I've also read the stand twice, but those were his two different, you know, his 1978 version and his 1990 version. Mm. But, um, but it, I've read twice and both times, just, I, I can't express how much that book touches me on a personal level and also just freaks me the fuck out. And uh, I think it's absolutely um, his best work now in your opinion while i've got you in the king's corner <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you maybe an uncomfortable question now this doesn't mean <laughs> it's it's a bad book but of the king books that you have read which would you say is your least favorite and are, th are there any reasons behind that mm -hmm. well i think i share a lot of people's uh least favorite as the tommyknockers and <clears throat> my reasoning is a little different. Um, most people dismiss that book by saying that it's just a mess, you know, uh, and, and say that it was the height of, of King's drug use. But, you know, he doesn't remember writing Cujo. And I think that book is beautiful. But uh, um, for me, it's mainly because I had heard all these people talk shit about Tommyknockers. And then I started reading it. And the first couple hundred pages, I was like, this this is one of the best things that King has ever written. What are y'all talking about? And then I read the second half of the book and was like, oh, that's what you're talking about. And, and so that's, I think that's what makes it uh, my least favorite is the first half of the book is, I mean, it's, it's 
absolutely literary horror. It's one of the best character studies that I've ever seen from King. Um, and to this day, I think of it often. And then um, the book just changes um, and becomes about something completely different. And all that character work is lost. And um, I've got a real bone to pick with him about it, Mr. King, gotta say. <laughs> yeah. So when you say King's Corner, you're talking about a boxing ring, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, awesome. <laughs> okay, so I've asked you those, those questions that I'm gonna ask everybody. But now, <clears throat> as we wrap this up, let me ask you a, a question specifically for you and specifically for this topic. Um, I'd like for you to give me or to, to give our listeners really this, this response. What, mm -hmm. are, what are three literary horror books that you'd recommend to someone who is maybe just uh, starting out or trying this specific subgenre for the first time? Where should they begin? Okay. So I'm going to cheat because originally I wanted my answer to be like, there's no way that I can pick three, shut up. But, um, so I'm gonna cheat a little, okay. but uh, still follow those rules a bit. So first off, I think that the, uh, the prime example of what I mean when I talk about literary horror is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, it's one of my favorite novels ever. Um, and the reason why is because she's not telling a horror story. She is, she is writing theme, you know, through this character. And, um, and I just, I can't get what she has to say about um, autonomy out of my head. Mm. Um, so that's definitely my first pick. Second pick, I'm going to have to go with short stories because I think they're so um, important in horror. Um, and I'm going to choose Paul Tremblay's Growing Things um, specifically because it constantly challenges the form or the format of storytelling of fiction. Um, there's a story called A Haunted House. Oh. Man, I should have looked this up before. It's it's pretty long, but like uh, a haunted house is a wheel upon which we are all broken or something like that. Um, and it is written like a choose your own adventure, um, but it's absolutely not. Like you have no choice. You're going to walk through the entire story no matter what you choose. And um, it's not even a haunted house story um, in its way. It's, it's, it's haunting but it's not haunted. Um, and then <clears throat> for my third one, I'm going to pick the two books that I read around the time when I realized I wanted to write literary horror. Mm. Um, the first is um, We Eat Our Own by Kia Wilson, um, who was kind enough to blurb the fear, um, which was just so monumental to me because her book means so much to me. She took uh, true stories of filmmaking in the 70s um, and turned it into this literary horror novel 
that is so literary, I'm pretty sure her publishers decided to scrap the word horror from all of their marketing. <laughs> but um, it's absolutely uh, literary horror. And the book that I've tied it with, I read around the same time, is um, A Cosmology of Monsters by Sean Hamill. Um, his, his book is, is beautiful. And I think that it was more influential on the writing of the fear than um, most everything else that I've read. Wow. All right. That's quite a list. And what's funny here, I haven't read We Eat. We Eat Our, our Own. Own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll add that to my, my TBR. But Frankenstein, Growing Things, and A Cosmology of Monsters, I've read all of those, and mm -hmm. I've read them in 2021. So that's kind of hey. cool. <laughs> yeah, that is. I've been getting my dose of literary horror. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and I loved all those books. I actually, I, I just did the audiobook for Growing Things last month. And mm. um, I, I really appreciated a lot of what, what Tremblay was able to do there. Um, and, he, and he took some risks. And, you know, I, I think a lot of them hit, at least for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm so curious. I'm so curious as to how that audiobook would play because a lot of the stories, um, they're very much like, you know, House of Leaves where it's, it's a maze. There's no linear way through the story, you know? Yeah. The Haunted House story was a little interesting um, because the end of each chapter is sort of, you know, allowing you the choice to choose. And so there's some repetition when you're listening to it. Yeah. But it, it still worked. I mean, I, yeah. I was able to get the gist of what he was doing. And like you said, you have no choice but to go through it. Either that, you're going to get through the whole house, or you're just going to be stuck forever bouncing <laughs> the same two rooms. Yeah. And that's another thing. I think time, time travel, time loops are very uh, influential to me. They pique my interest. So mm. I kind of, I love the idea of this being a wheel that, that you can be stuck in like a, like a freaking hamster, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess we should probably wrap up this debut episode of into the gloom. <laughs> um, <laughs> Spencer Hamilton, where can people find you? Well, I think, uh, the place I'm most active is Instagram. Um, and, and I am at nerdy wordsmith um, over there. And also I'd encourage you to go to my website, spencerhamiltonbooks.com um, and, and find my works there. All right. And what is your home address? <laughs> Man, I, I wish I had yours so I could just read yours on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I have the editing powers on my end. <laughs> All right, man. Well, this has been fun. And um, I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like within two minutes of us talking, my nervousness melted away. And this, this has just been an awesome time and an Absolutely. opportunity to nerd out with the nerdy wordsmith. Yeah, this was a blast. I love nerding about words. Um, and as always, it's always fun to nerd out with someone who uh, will take my nerdiness and send it back. Yes. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes. Yes. You are very welcome. Well, folks, dear listeners, um, we're going to wrap up this first episode, but stay tuned because there's a little bit of an outro that I put together that you're not going to want to miss.
and um, I, Spencer's had a sneak peek of it, so he knows what's coming. But it's I delicious. hope <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> I think your response was the delicious cheesiness or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I guess here comes the outro, y'all. Bye. We hope this episode haunts your nightmares. It's been an honor to scare you. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Into the Gloom podcast on Instagram for news on upcoming offerings. Until we meet again, remember to leave a light on. Ha 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 ha!